Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. If you live in America, chances are good you've heard the term mental health crisis bandied about in the media. While true that anxiety, depression, and other mood disorders seem to be on the rise, especially among young people, resources for addressing them remain scarce and stigmatized, and the conditions themselves remain poorly understood. Even doctors and scientists don't have all the answers. For example, is the development of a mood disorder the product of nature or nurture? Why are more women diagnosed with anxiety and depression than men? And in an industry that pathologizes everything from anger to arrogance, what actually constitutes normal human behavior? In her debut book of nonfiction, Quite Mad, an American Pharma memoir, author Sarah Fawn Montgomery explores these questions using both her own experiences and research as dual lenses to understanding mental illness, especially generalized anxiety disorder. From the fraught history of mental illness to the fascinating science of how antidepressants work, to a sharp examination of dubious practices within the American pharmaceutical industry, Montgomery takes the reader on a journey into the reality of mental health in the United States from a patient's perspective, shining a much-needed light on a topic so often shrouded in stigma. Today on the New Books and Literature, please join us as we sit down with Sarah Fon Montgomery to learn more about Quite Mad, an American Pharma Memoir, available now from Mad Creek Books. Seraphon, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's get started. We're talking about your uh, memoir, Quite Mad, an American Pharma Memoir. And so I wanted to begin, so early on in the book, you write about your family's history with mental health, particularly the drug Celexa. So to what extent did this history, coupled with your own experiences, influence your, your interest in learning more about the drugs that we take for anxiety? Yeah, so um, my, ma- my family's unique history with mental illness was definitely the catalyst for my research because several generations of my family were taking the same drugs, um, Celexa at that point, but they were all taking them for radically different reasons um, and oftentimes with very different results. So a lot of people are familiar with the prevailing concept of 
you know, mental illness being genetic, uh, but my family's mental health history is pretty unique in that regard. Um, I'm one of eight siblings. Um, we range in age from 50 all the way down to 15 um, because many of my siblings have been adopted from different family backgrounds. So I have a biological half-brother, a biological sister. I have adopted um, biological twins in my family, um, two adopted brothers from another family of origin, and then I have an adopted sister from another family of origin. So we each have different birth families um, and we each have different mental illnesses. So uh, between all of us, we have anxiety, depression, PTSD, bipolar disorder, disordered eating, obsessive dis uh, compulsive disorder, and so on. Um, so despite all of our varying ages, um, our various backgrounds in terms of you know, gender, race, socioeconomic class, location, the one thing that we shared in common was mental illness, um, and it was similar drug treatments, so primarily Celexa at the time that I was starting to write. Um, so I really wanted to know more about the different theories of mental illness, but also to kind of explore the stories that we tell about mental illness and its treatments, its drug therapies, and how these stories can influence the diagnosis and the treatments that patients receive, but also could influence how patients see themselves because my siblings and I have been treated very differently regarding our mental illness. Um, and this is because of our gender, um, our different families of origin, our ages, our race, um, and a host of other factors. So that's really what started my interest in researching this. Well, Quiet Mad is foremost a memoir sort of recounting your own experience, your family's experiences with anxiety and American pharma. It also relies pretty heavily on research about everything from the history of mental illness to the science of how antidepressants work to the dubious practices of the pharmaceutical industry. So could you tell us a little bit more about what your research process was like? Yeah, um, my research for Quite Mad, I always say, begins like most patient research starts. Um, so with our American healthcare system, which is one where if you are lucky enough to have access to medical care, you usually get a little more than you know 10 or 15 minutes with the doctor. And oftentimes the doctor is looking more at your chart uh, than at your face. Um, patients really don't have any choice but to advocate for themselves. Um, they don't have any choice but to do their research when it comes to treatment options um, and their research into various you know, side effects that they might encounter. Um, so my research for Quite Mad was really born out of the frustration that I felt as a patient um, and the many you know, unanswered questions or uncertainties that I had after different doctor's visits. Um, I had a very difficult time with side effects when I was trying to find treatment, um, and that's really where the research began. Um, but then after a while, I became interested in the drug companies themselves, um, their different profit margins, their marketing campaigns. Um, I was interested in how various drug components work. I wanted to know what was going on, you know, in my brain and my body um, in relationship to these different psychopharmaceuticals that I was taking. Um, and then eventually the research kind of spun out from there. And so I wanted to know more about the history of drug treatment itself, because the narrative around drug therapy is that, you know, all the numerous medications that we have on the market, um, you know, they're marketed as these wonder cures, yet mental illness rates continue to escalate in the United States. So I really wanted to interrogate that narrative of American resiliency, because it's a narrative that also has to account for the fact that 
despite the frequency with which we prescribe these medications and the very high doses that we prescribe, you know, when compared to prescribing patterns in other countries, um, we remain one of the sickest countries when it comes to mental illness. Um, and we have some of the worst recovery rates compared to other countries, even those with extremely limited access to healthcare. So while I was researching, I was reading everything from patient narratives to doctor testimonials. I was looking at drug trial studies, um, looking at books on the history of psychiatry and researching the history of American asylums. Um, and for me, interdisciplinary research was the way to go. So I looked at psychiatry, psychology, chemistry, gender studies, you know, disability studies and historical accounts, and then tried to weave these together um, throughout the book. So you mentioned in your answer um, about your experience of being a patient. And so I'm curious, because the book does talk about this quite extensively, what is the role of a quote unquote good patient? And how might these expectations about how one should present or perform sickness potentially cause more harm than good to a person's mental health? Yeah, well, the sick role I find fascinating. Um, and what the sick role is, is this concept that is created and then enforced by societal expectations about what it means to be, as you said, you know, a quote, good patient um, and what a, a good patient should do if they're going to take care of themselves. So being a good patient really varies depending on the illness. Um, a good patient with diabetes is expected to you know, take insulin or eat well or maintain certain blood sugar levels. Um, while a good mental illness patient is supposed to be calm, avoid stress, you know, not dwell on negative emotions and those sorts of things. But what's so interesting about the sick role is that it's largely focused on how patients should interact with what Susan Sontag describes as, um, you know, the kingdom of the well or the able-bodied world. So it's less about the patients and more about the people that the patients are encountering. So a quote, good mental illness patient um, should calm down when other people tell them to because it's upsetting to other people. And a good mental illness patient shouldn't bother other people with their feelings or talk too much about their pain because that's tiresome for others. Um, and if a patient doesn't do these things, if they don't comply by what society expects, um, they're often characterized as being non-compliant. They're accused of not wanting to get well, um, even accused of bringing it on themselves. So the sick role becomes this really wonderful and powerful way for us to blame patients for their illnesses or their disabilities, rather than accept the fact that patients have no control. And in many cases, medicine has no control. Um, and the fact that, you know, having an illness doesn't mean that you're required to live a certain kind of way as a result. Um, I would say that one of the most harmful things uh, about the sick role is the um, expectations, you know, of the good patient is that we expect most patients, regardless of, of illness or disability, to be really cheerful. We want our patients to be positive um, and we often want them to listen to other people's advice, um, even when the medical advice is not, you know, welcome um, and in many cases not, is, you know, not even correct. So I think most disabled folks um, can tell you that they've heard a range of different health tips from other folks, able-bodied folks, ranging from, you know, tips about diets, vitamins, um, yoga, meditation. Um, and while some of these things might be beneficial, um, essential oils, for example, are not going to cure diabetes. <laughs> They're not going to cure chronic depression or, or multiple sclerosis. Yet the able-bodied world often insists on giving this kind of unsolicited advice to patients and then accusing patients of not being good patients um, if they get frustrated or angry or if they don't accept the advice. 
So it's definitely harmful, like you, you said, um, to a person's mental health to have all these different restrictions put on the way that you're supposed to act when you're already not feeling well. Um, but I would say the most harmful thing that comes from the idea of a, quote, good patient is the blame that comes from that because it becomes a really convenient way to quite literally blame patients for causing their own mental illnesses. Right. And that that leads pretty well into my next question for you, which is, um, so in the chapter Nature or Nurture, you interrogate the question of whether mental health and illness are most affected by a person's innate brain chemistry or a person's life experiences. So what are some factors that might influence the development of anxiety in a person? There are, you know, a lot of different things that, that can cause anxiety. But one thing that I always like to point out in discussions about anxiety and anxiety disorders is that anxiety at its base level is, you know, a natural human condition. So everyone will feel levels of anxiety at some point in their lifetime. But an anxiety disorder is when that anxiety becomes so overwhelming and so chronic that it limits your ability to function as, as you normally would in the world. So for me, I received a, an anxiety disorder diagnosis when I began to have dozens, you know, sometimes 30 or 40 panic attacks in a single day. Um, and when I wasn't able to leave my house without having a panic attack or throwing up or fainting often. Um, and then when I began to experience visual and um, auditory hallucinations. So I always like to mention this because I think we fear anxiety because it's uncomfortable and it's, it's unnerving. Um, and part of the overdiagnosing that happens in this country comes because we want to be rid of anxiety altogether, which is not going to happen because it's, it's a normal normal human experience, a normal emotion. So we have to be able to learn to tolerate everyday anxiety and then to differentiate this from, you know, an anxiety disorder. Uh, but many things can cause anxiety disorders. So certainly, you know, genetics, um, I can trace my anxiety disorder and the way that it manifests to my biological sister and then to my mother. I can trace it through my cousins, my aunts, my grandmothers and back. Um, but a traumatic event in someone's life. So things like childhood abuse, um, you know, sexual assault, uh, neglect and abandonment, food scarcity, homelessness, um, domestic violence, you know, and so many other things. Those can all contribute to having an anxiety disorder later on in life. Um, we have this really interesting longstanding myth in America that if you have a PTSD diagnosis, you must have been a soldier, a combat soldier, which we know is not true because many people with PTSD diagnoses are, you know, sexual assault survivors, survivors of, you know, abuse and domestic violence, um, those who might have seen environmental catastrophe or fled from war. Um, and then anxiety disorders can also be caused by just contemporary day-to-day -day living because right now, you know, in this day and age, people are under incredibly high amounts of stress, both at work and at home. Um, we have, you know, environmental fears that are ever present and continuously mounting. We also are living in a political and social landscape uh, that makes living in America dangerous for a lot of people like women, people of color, queer folks, international folks, disabled folks. Um, adding to that, we have a medical system that's that's broken, that's quite literally disintegrating before our eyes. Um, affordable housing is becoming more and more scarce. Jobs are not available at the rate um, and with the security that they used to be. So all of these things can add to increases in anxiety. And over time, high levels of anxiety day to day can lead to developing an anxiety disorder as well. The DSM-5 is a controversial volume of symptoms and illnesses, which at various points in the memoir you write actually 
helps to pathologize normal human behaviors like frustration and anger, restlessness, arrogance. Um, So I'm curious, where does this notion of normal behavior come from? And why is it so problematic in the context of mental health? The the history of the DSM is this really fascinating and honestly terrifying history of the ways that we sort of coerce and control certain kinds of behavior. Um, And it's not to say that the creators of the DSM or any medical professionals who use it for prescribing practices are doing so with any kind of malice. Um, But rather, we've seen since its first publication in the 1950s that the DSM has steadily grown. So now it encompasses so many human emotions and so many human behaviors that anyone that picks it up and and thumbs through it can easily be categorized with several mental illnesses. So what began as maybe a 100-page volume now stretches to be nearly a 1,000 pages. And we can see mental illnesses coming in and out of the catalog, um, depending upon our social and political climates at the time. So a couple of examples. Um, There was a real concerted effort on the part of veterans groups to initially get PTSD added to the DSM. It took a lot of effort, a lot of sort of lobbying um, and sort of medical intervention between these various groups to get that added. Um, And at the same time, there was a real effort needed to remove homosexuality as being listed as a mental illness, which it was for a long time in the DSM. And this took far too long to to be removed. Um, And currently, there's some very funny ones. I I always like to point these out to folks. Um, Everything from cat caffeine withdrawal to cannabis withdrawal to premenstrual dysphoric disorder is listed in the current edition of the DSM and and labeled as a mental illness, which a lot of folks don't know. And again, I think is so odd. Um, And then like you mentioned before, I think what's more concerning is that the volume can list things like arrogance or anger as, as symptoms that we can measure against some kind of uniform standard when we know that both of those behaviors are more often afforded to privileged groups over others. So that when, you know, women or folks of color, for example, display these emotions, they're deemed less acceptable than when white men display them. A couple other examples, shyness and homesickness, those also have really fascinating histories in the DSM. And they've shifted from being socially acceptable at one point to now deemed um, as symptoms of mental illness, as something that is worrisome, because now we have an American culture that values confidence and independence. So since its creation, the DSM is this, it's become this way to police emotion and police uh, human behavior. And we are able to do so because it falls under the umbrella of mental illness, which which worries people um, and makes them behave in ways that they think are normal. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. You read extensively about the history of anxiety and particularly the ways that diagnosis and treatment is often gendered. 
Um, could you tell us a little bit about this history as well as your own experience as a woman with doctors and with institutions? Yeah. Um, so early in my experience with mental illness, um, which was in my early 20s, my symptoms were often just discounted. Um, they were called hysteria. Um, I had things, my, you know, my panic attacks and different symptoms blamed on hormones or on my female body. Um, and even after I began seeking treatment, I had quite a few side effects from medications. And even these side effects, which were real physical symptoms, um, those were often considered by doctors to be the result of my emotions or me being too sensitive. Um, and on several occasions, I even had real side effects from medications blamed on you know, my uterus, my ovaries, my female body. So we know that women's pain is much less likely to be believed by medical professionals, um, and it's even less likely to be examined in medical studies because most medical studies tend to rely on male subjects. So I really wanted to trace this history as it pertained uh, to women's pain and particularly to, to women's madness. So in the book, I explore um, medical sexism in quite a few different contexts. I look at everything from mad women like uh, Marjorie Kemp or the women that were accused in the Salem witch trials. Um, I explore theories like that of the wandering womb um, and things like the invention of the medical vibrator, which was a, a treatment that was created um, for women in terms of mental health. Um, I look at lobotomies and compare that to the creation of psychopharmaceuticals, because one of the things I found so fascinating is that our current psychopharmaceuticals can be traced back to um, you know, the first psychopharmaceutical that came out in the 50s and 60s, which was heralded by its creators as, quote, a, a chemical lobotomy. And I, I found that very, very sort of interesting, um, again, in thinking in terms of gender, because it was most often prescribed to women and lobotomies were often conducted on women without their consent. Um, Another thing that's terrifying is how little things have changed um, in terms of women in political power and labeling women seeking political power as mad. So you can compare someone like Joanna the Mad, who was imprisoned for insanity in order for the men around her to usurp her throne. You can compare that rhetoric to our current political rhetoric, which says the same thing, that women seeking political power are crazy, um, are too emotional, are unfit in some sense. And even the rhetoric surrounding um, contemporary you know, pharmaceuticals, so the rhetoric surrounding Valium, which was prescribed to women at pretty alarming rates from the 60s to the 1980s, um, that rhetoric is eerily similar to the ads that we see on TV today for antidepressants, which are most often targeted and marketed towards women. Um, and the ads themselves, um, again, have that same sort of notion that they did um, in ads for Valium, which implies that mental illness is a problem for women primarily because it makes them unfit mothers or poor wives or, um, you know, bad housekeepers, which I think, again, is, is sort of eerie in some sense. During many of the events depicted in Quite Mad, the seraphon on the page is a, is a graduate student. Can you describe what it was like to be dealing with the side effects of medications like Zoloft while also managing the rigorous expectations of a graduate program? Yeah, um, graduate school is, you know, it's challenging enough on its own because you've got long research hours, you've got teaching, um, a, a large amount of service work. Uh, but my graduate school experience was also interrupted by really powerful symptoms um, and then lengthy doctor's visits as I was starting to look into treatment. And these doctor's visits and all this medical care really required a lot of my time, which I didn't have a tremendous amount of, um, but more importantly, my limited graduate resources. 
So I had a very difficult time finding treatment that worked. And so along with, you know, the usual side effects that come um, from taking psychopharmaceuticals, so things like headache, nausea, upset stomach, all those things they list at the end of ads, um, I had quite a few really severe side effects. So things like um, permanent changes to my vision, uh, permanent hair loss, anorgasmia. I experienced SSRI withdrawal. Um, and then I also experienced a really dangerous side effect called akathisia. Um, and these were all really challenging to manage on their own. Um, but what was most challenging for me, honestly, was trying to pretend that everything was okay and trying to pretend like I had it all under control because academia and graduate school are known for feigning control, for um, valuing precision and logic, um, and anxiety is anything but those. So while I was in my doctoral program, I was learning to be an authority, uh, to speak with confidence, to present myself as an expert in my field. And I was doing all of this while, honestly, I, I felt like I was losing my mind. And while many medical professionals were telling me that there might not be anything that they could do um, to help me. And so that self-doubt, of course, magnified how I felt in my program. And it really increased the pressure that I felt to perform. Uh, one of the things that I find so disheartening in the discourse around graduate studies and mental health is how common mental illness is in graduate school. Uh, there was a recent study done in 2019 um, by Harvard that found that graduate students are three times more likely than the average American to experience mental illness. Um, and this is, of course, because of the nature of graduate study. So graduate school requires long hours, um, which is really challenging for anyone, but especially if you have a family or a full-time job or children um, or disability. Um, it also provides incredibly low wages. So students acquire a tremendous amount of debt and there's no job security upon graduation. So that pressure, that sense of scarcity, the sense that time is running out, um, the notion that you have to be the very best in order to compete for the very limited resources, those can all contribute to mental illness. Um, what I wish I had known during my graduate study was how common uh, mental health challenges were and how many of my peers were probably struggling with similar issues. Because if I had known that, we likely could have found some sense of strength um, and community together. So later on in the book, you describe experiencing a shock at your doctor's office after finding out that you were diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder without your knowledge or consent. Um, so what was this revelation like for you and how common are experiences like these among those seeking treatment for anxiety? Uh, the moment that you're referring to in the book uh, was several years into treatment, probably five or six years into treatment for my anxiety disorder. And at this point, no one had ever mentioned obsessive compulsive disorder to me. And so one day I'm in the doctor's office for a routine medication checkup and the nurse is reading my chart like they usually do at the beginning of a visit. And she mentions this OCD diagnosis. And I was honestly shocked because no one had ever said anything to me. Um, and I wasn't, to my knowledge, being treated for it. So to me, it felt like a kind of violation in some way because as we know, labels on medical charts, they follow us for a very long time. And a diagnosis shapes how a patient sees themselves in the world, how they, how they feel about themselves. And the other thing that was so odd was that nobody had ever spoken directly to me about the symptoms of the disorder or the treatments. And so if this was a new diagnosis, I, I felt certainly somebody would have informed me of the symptoms, the causes, and the treatments so that I could navigate my life more manageably with it. Um, and I would say it certainly does happen for patients fairly regularly. 
recovery, especially uh, mental health patients. So about a decade after the, the moment that I just described, I moved to a new state. Um, I was having a physical, just my yearly exam with a new physician. And within 10 minutes of the exam, the doctor had diagnosed me with two other mental illnesses, which I found so bizarre because honestly, all we had talked about at that point was my job, my hobbies, and my cats. Um, so moments like these, they feel like this strange violation because patients aren't really given any kind of voice. You have no agency or power. Um, and those diagnoses, they're transformative in many ways. Do you, do you feel like that's kind of a common thing within the medical institution that um, maybe patients are assigned diagnoses without being um, told about it or without having any input from the patient? I would say certainly so. I mean, we, we ask patients when they come in for a medical visit um, to describe their symptoms, but oftentimes patients aren't given more than a few minutes to speak with a physician. And one of the things that I always find so concerning, especially in conversations around mental health, is how often doctors don't inquire after patients' um, lives. They'll ask about the symptoms, you know, how are you feeling? How long have you been feeling this way? Rated on a scale of one to 10. But we don't ask patients about what factors in their life might be contributing to things like anxiety. Um, and so again, that notion that we're, we're only looking at a small glimpse of someone's life. And I, I, do, I do feel that a lot of patients are, are given diagnoses without um, being given the proper agency in telling their life story um, and being given the consent that they need. Um, a physician certainly doesn't need to get a patient's consent to give a diagnosis, um, but we do need to listen to a patient's story, story and give a patient um, the, the ability to tell their story or to tell the whole story, which of course we can't do given these really short doctor's visits um, that most patients get. Right. So um, kind of a broad question overall, how has the process of writing, of narrative, of categorizing, defining, researching a book like Quite Mad helped you personally to make sense of these experiences and ultimately of your own relationship to anxiety? I love this question um, because when I set out to write the book, I wanted to tell, you know, my sort of painful story of what it's like to live with silence and shame, um, what it's like to feel like you're broken, um, to have the world be suspicious of you or doubt your truth or treat you like a child and, and strip you of your agency, which we often do with mental health patients. But the process of researching and then writing the book really made me see uh, mental illness in a new way. Um, I, I've reframed my mental illness in the years since writing this from seeing it as a disorder to seeing it as a strength. So um, I don't look at anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, or post-traumatic you know, stress disorder um, as inherent parts of my life that are going to detract from my life anymore. I see them um, for what they provide to me. So we often you know, frame mental health as a deficit when it can offer lots of much needed perspective in the world. So I always say my mental illnesses give me patience. Um, they give me kindness. They give me empathy, which the world certainly needs right now. Um, and I see this the most, or I recognize this the most when I'm teaching, uh, because as we know, the largest rates of mental illness in this country are for folks who are 18 to 25. So when I'm teaching, I try to provide students the kindness that I needed when I was a student and struggling. Um, and I try to provide the empathy that all patients deserve, but that so few rarely actually get. So I always say my mental illness, um, it gives me tenderness, um, gives me openness in a world that doesn't really seem to value these, um, but in a world that needs them right now, especially. 
Um, and I've come to see my anxiety, I always say, not as an enemy, which is how I used to see it when I was first diagnosed. Um, now I see it as, as this old friend, which I know sounds a bit strange, but it's always with me. Um, it's been with me longer than some of my, my friends in my life right now, and it knows me most intimately. Um, it's not going to go away, likely. Um, I, so I've sort of reframed how I think of it. I think of my anxiety now as a barometer in many ways um, that tells me how I've been caring for myself, um, how I've been being treated by others and how my response is to the world, um, which we know right now is sort of a cruel and frightening place for many people. Um, so when my anxiety increases, I take this as a reminder to myself to slow down if I can. Um, I take increases in anxiety as a, as a cue to take better care of myself um, and to give myself you know, forgiveness and give myself kindness because we all deserve that, but we don't often give it to others, um, let alone to ourselves. Um, and I think this is really important because we, we live in a contemporary society where we tell people to work as hard as they can. Uh, we tell them to push themselves to the limits and then we say that that's not good enough. Uh, we tell them to accept less than they deserve in terms of wages and respect. Um, and so my anxiety, while it still is, you know, frightening at times and it can be very painful, it really is a reminder to myself um, to give myself empathy, patience, and forgiveness, and then to extend those to others who are likely hurting as well. So in thinking about kind of contemporary society, um, the epilogue of the book is written from kind of a dark place that in many ways over the almost four years since the words were written, we still inhabit. And so I'm curious, with the 2020 election on the horizon, what are your hopes for the future, and maybe particularly in terms of mental health care in America? Yeah, so the epilogue uh, takes place on the eve of the 2016 election, which was when the rhetoric around mental health and women in particular was very misogynistic, accusatory, um, very dangerous. In the middle of that campaign, we had a candidate speak openly about sexually assaulting women um, and then become our president. We had a qualified woman judged for her appearance, for not smiling, uh, for being a bad mother or a grandmother because she had political aspiration. And then on both sides, there were calls about health and fitness that were deeply alarming to me. So many people were implying that a woman was too emotional or mentally unstable to be president, while on the other side, others were, you know, sort of armchair diagnosing the new president with various mental illnesses. And the rhetoric around mental health at the time was reminiscent of what we saw throughout the last century in America, the same rhetoric that led to mass institutionalization, um, calls for eugenics, and so forth. So in the years since um, that epilogue takes place, I would say we've seen increasing attacks on women, increasing attacks on health care and on mental health care in particular. And on, on both sides, uh, we've seen sort of this brazen silencing of powerful women and their anger and their experience. So it really doesn't matter what network you turn on on the television or what party or candidate you support. There's always an older straight white man who's wagging his finger to correct you know, qualified women or to correct folks of color or queer folks or international folks or working class folks or disabled folks. Um, so it's disheartening to me that so many campaigns fail to discuss disability 
at all. Um, even when they're discussing American healthcare systems, discussions of disabilities seem to be largely absent or erased. Um, so my hopes for the future would be that um, America's healthcare system is reworked in a way that it supports those in need um, rather than simply rewarding those who are healthy. Um, and I would hope that mental health care treatment would become more widely accessible. Um, but I also say that in terms of mental health care treatment, um, my main hope would be that we diversify mental health care treatment so that it more widely, so that it's not only more widely accessible, but that it's more diverse in terms of who it can serve. Because many mental health care facilities don't adequately address um, race, sexuality, gender identity, class, location, disability, and the understanding of these intersections um, and the ways that various identities and mental health um, work together is so important in best serving patients. That's a great answer. Um, so I just have one one more question for you about the book, and that is that what are, what are you hoping that readers, and maybe especially readers who might be able to relate to some of the experiences um, that you share in Quite Mad, uh, what are you hoping that these readers will take with them after the experience of reading your book? Um, I would say I hope that readers, um, and particularly those. Um, that have experienced mental health struggles, I hope that they feel a sense of comfort in knowing that their stories are being shared. Um, when I was first a patient, I felt a very large discrepancy between my experience and the story that's told in mainstream media regarding mental illness. So I really set out to write the book that I needed as a patient. And that's a book that shares what it's like to experience mental illness, but also a book that tells the science behind the brain and the body, that tells us about the various treatments that are available to us, that tells us about the history, you know, particularly in America, of these disorders, which have become in some way a kind of national identity as well as a national crisis. And so I hope readers find comfort in knowing that their stories, however painful, um, are also shared by so many other people. Um, and to that end, I would say I also hope that readers find a sense of community when they read my book. Um, so many of us are told that we're wrong. Um, so many of us have believed that we are broken. Uh, but much of my healing process has come from understanding that I am my own kind of normal um, and that I share so many wonderful qualities with so many other anxious people. Um, and we really do belong to a rich history that could um, enrich our understanding of mental illness and, and really help shape our, our treatment of mental illness. So I have found a great strength in owning my story um, and believing my story to be one of value rather than one of burden. And so I hope that Quite Mad um, engages others to do the same. I hope that it helps um, so many of us that have been silenced for so long, for so many centuries. I hope that it helps us all to come to voice. Well, that's wonderful. Seraphon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your thoughtful answers to these questions. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with Seraphon Montgomery, author of Quite Mad, an American Pharma memoir on New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.